0: yourself I got an interesting email this week he says thank you for taking my email in question my girlfriend and i listen to you on the radio and she respects your opinion as i do so here's the question i've been separated for nine months i'm working on a divorce is it okay to date i believe it is but she's not comfortable with being around people who know my divorce is not final. Can you help? He kind of answered it. What he said, she's not comfortable, but he is. So you always look at who owns the problem. And the truth of the matter is, she wants a chapter closed before they open another one. I respect her for that. I know we're in this disposable society where people kind of come and go as they please and they enter into relationships when they don't necessarily need to. And I'm always saying, whenever possible, shut down a relationship. Spend a little time by yourself. Then, if you so desire to pick one up again, do that. I think that makes a lot of sense. Now, the... Old standard was, if you're divorced, broken up, separated, uh, and then divorced, the most important thing to do is to give it a year. Now, I know in today's world that is not realistic. It just isn't. Um, wait, we are an immediate gratification kind of society. Um, that's why, in some ways, this COVID thing has really been good. It has really allowed people; it's made them have to slow down and examine their own lives, and create values that they knew they should have attended to in the past, but they didn't, and they didn't because there was too much other stimulation going on. You know, I I, I mean, I'm speaking for myself too. There is no doubt. I am a work hard, play hard kind of gal. I am. I'm a, I'm a girl that loves to get out there, exercise, experience life, go new places, meet new friends, visit with the old. I mean, I'm very, very extroverted and I'm very social. Many, many, many of my clients are introverts. And this pandemic has been good for them. They're content, they're happy. If they're addicts, they have less temptation. If they're um, partners, they feel like they have um, more, more control over their family life. They believe they know what's going on. And so as a result, the family is functioning better. Now, I know you've probably heard a lot of the same things that I have, that suicide is up, and physical abuse is up, and crime is up, and those things may be true, but I'm not seeing it in my practice. I am a woman who works 55 hours a week. I see a lot of different people from all over the world. This podcast has afforded me such a great opportunity two things. One is I get to work with people like you all over the world not necessarily in a telehealth mental health capacity but in my coaching capacity. You know, I can't necessarily cross lines and see clients um, and get paid from insurance but I definitely can disseminate a lot of the same information via coaching. When I first started coaching They said, do not deal with anybody who has mental health issues. You wait till they get their mental health issues fixed, and then you take their life to the next level. Patrick Carnes had a whole module on how we could take your life to the next level and not necessarily be a coach, but I'm not kidding you. He had some of the same exercises that I learned, and I had put together this coaching book about how to take your life to the next level. And I gave it to him and I said, Patrick, you and I need to be doing something together. We're on the same wavelength. He took the book. He reviewed it the night before. He said, this is excellent. Didn't follow through with anything, but, you know, I was kind of impressed that he looked at it. I could tell he did because he told me the different exercises that he really liked. Then coaching became very specific and you had ADD coaching and you had couples coaching and, My president of IPEC, the coaching school that I went to, said, you're going to go into sex addiction next, Carol? That's the perfect, perfect niche for you. And I am like, what? People that have sex addiction are confused. They do have trauma. They are reenacting their trauma. They need a lot of mental health. And he said, Oh, yeah, but you're a mental health therapist and a coach. You can really serve them. Well, I felt pretty good about that, and I absolutely believe that to be true. And partner betrayal is, you know, just as devastating. And i got to tell you, I'm working on a partner betrayal uh, self-esteem book. I'm actually, you know how I am about, I want my partners to get to the other side. I want them to feel good about themselves again. I want them to have post-traumatic growth completed. As of this morning, a workbook on how you can get to post-traumatic growth and work through a lot of the safety and stabilization issues, a lot of the grief and mourning and anger issues. And I talk to them about how they can get their anger out, and some of it is very gestalt. It's very experiential. Um, I, just, I just was telling some clients today, I said, listen, I will book you for my home when my husband is out of town and we're going to do some anger exercises and you're going to be using your volume and you are going to be using your voice in a way you've never used it before. And it's not that I'm advocating screaming at each other, but I am advocating Speaking with authority and holding your own. Having great boundaries with consequences and letting people know what you'll settle for. And that means settling for nothing but self-respect, safety, dignity, authenticity, integrity. You got it. Tonight I am so excited because we're going to be talking about a subject that we don't talk about much. And it is... um, She's really quite good. It's Brianne Davis, and she wrote this book called "I'm a Sex and Love Addict." Here's how I realized I had a problem. And then she had written another book called "Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict." The woman's gorgeous, um, and she listen to me like. She's gorgeous, well, she is gorgeous, and very much wanting to share how she has overcome and learned how to manage sex and love addiction. And so she's going to be sharing her journey as a love and sex addict and how she used her experience to find a creative way to help other people, which has really opened up doors for her writing she has a podcast. So I mean, she has put it to good use and see, that is taking your life to the next level. When you are able to give back, whether that's to your kids, to your neighborhood, to your church, or to other addicts, you are following that 12-step philosophy. you are actualizing your potential. And you're creating a life where you found passion and purpose. So that's what I want you to think about today. I'm going to give you a big goal, probably because I've been writing this book for several months, and that is to think about how you already are leaving a legacy, you know, what you're doing, and I just mentioned, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your community, in your church, in your fellowship? What are you doing that's contributing and making a difference, right? i got this guy in group, and he's been through it all. Um, he's a factory worker. And I don't know if you have ever um, known any factory workers, but i got to tell you, they have a lot of freedom. I mean, if, if I want to see them for an appointment, They can come day, night, middle of the day, morning. I mean, you know, they work so much overtime. They just make it up. And that then means it affords them an opportunity, unfortunately, to act out. Right? And so what I have really appreciated is that when somebody's in good recovery, they want to share it with the world. They do. And probably one of my most insightful, um, philosophical, um, I, you know, I just can't think of enough words to describe this guy. He is always on the thread of our group, just boosting people up and reminding, reminding the guys, he have empathy for her. Of course she'd feel that way. Uh, did you share that with her? Did you tell her you were sorry? Did you show some remorse? Did you AVR her? Now, for somebody who's listening for the first time, AVR is the empathy formula, and it means that you acknowledge the issue or the pain, you validate, you validate, you know, and then you reassure the person that you see it from their perspective, you get it, and you honor it. In some way, maybe you honor it because you're in good recovery, right? Or maybe you honor it by um, sitting with somebody's pain, sitting with your wife's pain, and saying, "I'm here for the duration. I get that I caused this, and I am going to hang in there and be with you." Because truly, that is that's empathy at its finest. And I'm a big believer in righting the wrong. When you have, oh boy, when you have really somebody, the least you can do is work through it with them. Absolutely what I believe. And that's why um, the book Help Her Heal by yours truly is a great exercise in empathy building. I never work with anybody if I don't have them, you know, talking to each other face-to-face. I never work with anybody if they're not willing to look at the left eye, the window to the soul. And I really encourage good communication by listening, not talking. And so reflective listening and focused listening is so important to relationship development. So those, those are just a few things that you can be thinking about if you've got a relationship that needs some repair. Now, I like I said before, I'm really excited. I love when people can talk about love addiction because it's all about attachment and it's all about wounding. So I am so excited to welcome Brianne Davis to the show and welcome and Glad to have you on. This is such an important subject, and I know this is your passion and purpose. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Brianne.
1: Oh, hi! Nice to meet you over uh, the call. Yeah, um, I'm so glad to be here. It is feels like my life purpose. You know, I've been in sex and love addiction for the last 11 years. I had 10 years of recovery and the program, and I. You know, I'm happily married, I have a child now, and I'm, in the, I'm an artist, I'm an actress, I have a podcast called Secret Life Podcast, um, and my whole life right now seems like it's putting the word out there with sex and love addiction, and especially for females and people that are in relationships with sex and love addicts, and how to make that work. So I'm so glad to be on and to but- talk to you today.
0: Well, absolutely. So it's kind of an oxymoron, your podcast, because it's not like you're advocating a secret life, but you 100% understand that that's part of the pathology that kept you locked in your own secret, and that kept you from getting healthy, right? Yeah,
1: well, for me, I loved having a secret life. I relished in having this part of part of me that was just mine and no one else's. And that I had this secret above other people. But then I realized, you know, when you get older, it was killing me. It was killing. I was never truly connected to another living soul, even my good girlfriends, And it was killing my relationships. And I realized I cannot have secrets. Secrets are what kills people. So on my podcast, we celebrate you know, looking at if you have a secret right now in the present, or you've been through a really hard secret and you're through it and how you are on the other side. And everybody, some people are like, Oh, I don't have any secrets. I'm like, everybody has secrets. And it's just bringing that darkness out into the light. So there's no more shame. There's no more judgment um, that other people have been through the
0: same thing. Well, so now, how long have you have you been um, in recovery from sex and love addiction?
1: Eleven years.
0: And how long were you an active sex and love addiction?
1: Oh, I I'm I'm pretty sure my first time I had a high in sex and love addiction was when I was in seventh grade. But I'm thinking it started even earlier. I remember seeing love stories and movies way too young. My favorite movie growing up was Romeo and Juliet, which is not appropriate for a five-year-old to watch. And I remember thinking, oh, the love scene was so passionate. And I remember also thinking to myself, that's what real love is. One person has to drink poison or the other one has to stab themselves mean if it's true love so Shakespeare really modeled for me my sex and love addiction yeah. I
0: feel like <laughs> yeah it's almost like to have a relationship you had to be in pain and you had to hurt yourself and you had to hurt each other mm-hmm. and you couldn't get your needs met and so my theory and certainly mm-hmm. some of the intense work I've done with Pia Melody and some of the grapes with uh, love addiction is that Oftentimes, it, is, it develops out of a wounding or an attachment issue. Do you think at age five, six, seven, or eight, you had any attachment issues or wounding?
1: Well, a couple of things happened at that time. I, at that age, you realize if you are getting mirrored a healthy relationship. You look at your parents, the first people you see, and I, a healthy marriage was not mirrored for me. My parents did not get along. Um, I actually never saw them hold hands or kiss or even sleep in the same bed together. So that probably molded, you know, that marriage doesn't work for me. And then on top of it, I also had, um, you know, I was, uh, molested at a young age, um, at that age, around six, I think I'm not exactly sure. So after that stops, you stunt your growth. I feel like. And then on top of it, um, I was very attached to my father, and he – it wasn't – it was almost an emotional incest where he treated my sister and I like his wives, like we were his partners instead of my mother. So I had all this, you know,
0: mixed messages, if that explains
1: it in a nutshell,
0: (laughs) Well, absolutely, because obviously our parents do the best they can. But when you combine, have been molested with, with a family that maybe didn't have the clearest roles and boundaries, it can get very, very confusing. And you can kind of go outside of yourself to find happiness, acceptance, and attention. So mm-hmm. I want to ask you, you know, what was it like when you did get sober, how old were you, and what was that first year like?
1: Okay. Well, I waited till I was about 28. I feel like that's a time a lot of people look at themselves. You either have to make a transition at 28, 29, or you're going to spend the next seven years in that state. So I, I was with this man that I loved and I respected, but all the, the, you know, insecurities, the flirting, the intrigue outside of my relationship started bubbling up because I'm also an actress. So I go on location. I'm gone for months at a time, um, you know, if you are have a love scene with somebody. So all that stuff. And then uh, my mentor passed away, my acting mentor passed away, and I just felt all these like I, I felt like I wanted to crawl out of my skin and I wanted to destroy my life. And I wanted to like sleep with that person or intrigue with that person. And I just, it hit me. Am I going to be doing this the rest of my life? Am I going to always be looking outside of myself for men to fix me? Because I said, there's one common denominator. It can't be all these guys. It has to be me. So, the yeah, great well, thing I was seeing
0: smart. is. yeah. Well, I, mean, I that, just. That I, was it a lot flashed of flashed time. before
1: my eyes. Yeah. I mean, uh-huh. it was like a flash in my face. I couldn't. I said, Am I going to be on my deathbed never being connected to another soul for the rest of my life? So, I went okay, to therapy. So and. Yeah. So, I went to therapy, she and went. she said, I think so you said went something. To therapy. Yes. Yeah. I went to therapy and she looked at me. This was such a moment for me. And I I wrote about it in my book that I have coming out called Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. And she said, you wear a mask. You are wearing a mask of a high class prostitute. And I was like, did you just call me a prostitute? Because it's not like I had a ton of sexual partners. You can be a sex and love addict or a sex addict and not have a ton of partners. So I I was really offended. And she looked at me and she said, you have an intimacy problem. I think you're a sex and love addict. And I got out of therapy. I got in my car. I called my boyfriend at the time. And I was bawling my eyes out, driving on the 101 in Los Angeles. And I was, I'm a sex and love addict, she says. And I got home because we lived together. And he highlighted all the meetings in Los Angeles. And I went two days later. And I sat in a room of. Forty people that were completely different from me I remember walking in a room sitting there and thinking I have nothing in common with all these people and they started talking crying and I remember sitting there thinking oh my god I'm not broken there's nothing wrong with me I'm not because I always felt like I'm missing the gene that wants to be completely committed to somebody else and it just it gave me this place where like, I'm not broken. I'm not alone. I just didn't have the tools. My family didn't have the tools. My father's uh, father died when he was really young. And my mother had a very, very verbally abusive mother. So neither of my parents had great role models for their, you know, being a mom and a dad. So it just, It was like this beautiful awakening for a minute. And then the year of withdrawal happens. And I have to tell you, Carol, that was torture. It was pure torture of nine months, being on the ground, crying every day, not being able to do any acting jobs because I couldn't walk into a room and become someone else when I didn't even know who I was. And I cried and I stuck with it and I went to meetings, I called people and I went to therapy twice a week. So it was brutal. That first nine months a year was brutal.
0: Well, yeah, but you were very, very strong to go through that work because let's face it, it takes a lot of courage to kind of face your fears and work with a whole group of people and begin that 12-step process and what are... And love addict meetings like? How are they different or the same as AA, NA, SA, or SAA? Well,
1: I think SLA is different. Well, a couple of things that really hit me that first year, I want to mention why they're different. So I remember I was sitting at a meeting, and this gentleman walked in and he said, I could quit heroin but I couldn't quit her. And that to me states what sex and love addiction is. Sex and love addiction is like the PhD of all the other addictions. It's what drugs and alcohol all go on top of normally. Um, So we have a lot of old timers in AA come in that have had 30 years. Um, We've had people from SA come in, because it didn't hit the love and abandonment issues that is underneath sex and love addiction. But really, the meetings are the safest room you can imagine. I've heard in AA rooms, you know, there's a lot of 13-stepping or people are inappropriate. And sex and love addicts room, it's very safe. People don't cross other people's boundaries. There's very strict rules. You can't say certain things. You can't go into descriptions of your acting out. And if you do, everybody takes a group conscious and you're not allowed to say certain things. And I'm not kidding you. It is the best group of humans I have ever met in my entire life. Like the closest people the people that know all my deepest, darkest secrets and still love me anyway, to be able to sit in a room and say your worst thing you've ever done or the worst thing you think about yourself, you know, that voice we have in our head that like beats us up, this room and these people love you unconditionally.
0: Yeah, I think that's incredible. And, you know, I certainly work with – partners of sex addicts that are very, very threatened mm-hmm. when um, there's a female sex addict or a female sex and love addict in not an all-males meeting, but a meeting where they're probably all males. You know what I mean? And so what I hear you saying is no, very everybody is so respectful of each other's boundaries mm-hmm. and wouldn't cross that line because that line, had been crossed and crossed and crossed and crossed prior to recovery, right?
1: I'm telling you, if anyone's listening and their partner is a sex and love addict and they go to mixed meetings, there are, I think the co-ed meetings are the best because I go in and listen to a male talk about his feelings, talk about his fears. He becomes a human. He doesn't become an object anymore or someone I have to have power over. And the same is said about, you know, men for women. They see their vulnerability. They see they're also human. I have never heard, and I now, our meetings, we have so many meetings. There's 1,300 meetings in the USA. They're worldwide now. They're in Bali. They're, you know, in the craziest places. Um, And I have not heard rarely have I heard anybody crossing the line or anybody getting involved with each other because everybody's there to heal. When you come into a sex and love addicts room, you're not coming in to pick up or find your partner. You're coming in because you know you're broken and this is the last stop on the block. They say, I think they say AA is the last house on the block. They say SLAW is sex and love addicts is like, the shack in the back that no one ever wants to go to. So nobody's coming in the room to find, to find a sexual partner. People are coming in the room
0: because they're in so much pain. Oh, I get that. Now let me ask you, what, what have been some of the toughest situations that you've ever been in because of your love and, and sex addiction? toughest
1: situations I think for me you know being with a man that I love and not being able to fully have intimacy with someone I love is very very hard for me it's scary if I love you it almost is painful I don't know if any of your listeners have said that or any of your guests but it's like very painful for sex and love addicts to love. Um, It's almost all-consuming. So the toughest thing was being in the first year of my sobriety and not being able to have sex with my partner. I could not have sex with him because I didn't have myself. I needed to find myself again. I needed to connect to You know, the inner child, the person that I used to be before all this acting out, you know, and trauma came on top of top of it. So that first year of going through the withdrawal, not being able to sleep with my boyfriend I was living with, and it being like getting through that period was the toughest thing. But when I was able to become intimate again, it was a different experience. I was a different person, and and also I was willing to let go of that relationship to heal myself. And my partner was also willing to let me go so I could heal
0: myself. So wow, the, that, I was sitting here uh, thinking. You know, I was thinking yes. about what it must have been like for him. You know, I you've got this mission and you know that it's gonna be good for you even though it's terribly painful and very tough. But he really paced you and was willing to give you that gift, huh?
1: Well, the first thing is I didn't know if it was gonna work, Carol. I had no idea. It's literally like jumping off a cliff into the unknown. Like a per part of me was dying was something else to be reborn and I didn't know what that was going to look like I just knew that if I kept doing what I was doing if I kept cheating if I kept flirting and intriguing if I kept using other people to make me feel better um, you all that stuff you know texting social media all that stuff I was using to fill me and I knew if I didn't stop I was going to be empty the rest of my life I just had this feeling, but for him, you know, we've talked about it and he, he's the man I'm married to today. We've been together for 15 years. He, you know, we just had a kid two years ago. I never thought I was going to be married. I never thought I was child. I didn't want those things. I thought I was just going to be that enigma girl floating around that you couldn't catch. But for my, my now husband, You know, the lucky thing, as I have to say, my higher power, my God or spirit or whatever you want to call it, had me pick a man that was 30 years sober. You know, when we first started dating, he was, oh my gosh, he was 25 years sober in his program. So I picked somebody that knew the path. So the beautiful thing is, He knew I needed help, and he also could, like, be next to me and let me walk my own path through my program. But it was painful for him, for sure. It was very, very painful for him not to – he couldn't come and fix me if I was crying. It was a rule between us. You know, we had to do a lot of intimacy exercises that are not fun. (laughs) So it was painful for him.
0: Yeah, I I love that obviously it was meant to be that you you had a partner that was so patient and who understood what you needed. And I'm sure it wasn't all roses and other flowers, but it (laughs) definitely was helpful to you. And you've been married how long?
1: We've been together and married for 15 years.
0: Wow. Wow. Okay, so now would you tell us – how in the world did um, your disease manifest? Because everybody has a, a different journey. So how did yours manifest?
1: Well, mine manifested, like I said, very young. I, you know, I first cheated on a, a, a boyfriend in seventh grade. Another boy kissed me at a party. And I'm not joking you it was, like a, it was like my entire body became on fire. And I've been chasing that high ever since. So for me, it uh-huh. was a bunch of monogamous. I, I love long-term relationships, I, but I would have two at the exact same time. So in high school, I had two boyfriends for two years in the same high school, at the exact same time, and it was all like the lies and the cheat and the secrets and like getting out of trouble and almost getting caught it was all those things that was it was more exciting to me than the actual you know sex or anything like that it was the build up so it just kept getting more intense I kept like adding on new people and then stringing along someone else and it just got to a point where it was like keeping track of all the lies and the secrets was a full-time job. I'm surprised I even worked because that was a full-time job.
0: Yeah, I get that. Now, so, (laughs) all right. What were your bottom lines? I mean, tell the listening audience what bottom lines are and, you know, what were your own bottom lines?
1: Well, bottom lines are what, counts as our sobriety or someone's sobriety but the difficult thing of, and you know sex and love addiction and sex addiction and even overeaters or da and those kind of they're gray areas so everybody has a different bottom line which makes it difficult you know when you get a sponsor or somebody helping you but for me my bottom lines were pretty strict of, of course one would be not sleeping out with anybody outside of my relationship, but it was also no, no guy friends whatsoever. So I got rid of all my guy friends. I just blocked them, stopped talking to them, had no guy friends. Um, I wasn't allowed to text, email, call, or talk to any males, which is meaning I would go to a restaurant and, if I had a male waiter, I would be looking at the menu and I would order not looking at him because I realized I think of a year and a half into it that I can get a jolt just from somebody looking at me. It an energy exchange, you know, walking down the street. So I purposely did not make eye contact with any males. And there was this one incident that I always love to talk about when I share Um, I share a lot all over the world. I talk about I had a year and a half of sobriety and I was feeling really great. And I went and got my year and a half chip and I went to a burger place after, and I rolled down the window to pay for my burger. And this 15 year old was working at the window and he did this thing. He was like, (gasps) he like, he found me attractive and he made this noise and like I, it was like heroin shot up my arm. It was, I Mm. felt it and I was like, wow, I am going to be a sex and love addict for the rest of my life. Like this Mm -hmm. is just, you don't, you do not, this never goes away. And that moment to me solidified I have to do this work. I have to be finding love for myself more than anybody else, because that's what it is. It's about finding self-love. It's not about finding the perfect partner. Cause like I said, I was, I'm still with the same man. It's about loving myself because that at, at that moment I realized I have to really dig deep and love myself or this disease is going to take me down sooner or later. So for yeah, yeah, it was very and, you simple. Know, I didn't talk to any any males. I just took it off the table.
0: Well, I love that you say it's very simple, and it is. But that's the hardest thing to do. So you took it totally. off the table. Totally. <laughs> yeah, but you and you definitely must have had some strong support in your life to abstain. Because I mean, it is. It's like not giving you oxygen when you've been an addict for that long. So what were some of the supports, you know, both in the fellowship and and obviously outside of the fellowship?
1: Well, like I said, I did intense therapy. I went to a therapist twice a week. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. we did a ton of inner inner child work where you have to sit and feel your, feel your body and where things are getting tight and really dig in and, And, like, what is that feeling about? What is that tightness about? So we did a lot of, like, the body work releasing. I went to Reiki a lot to release tension in my body. That really helped me because it was also a self-care act that I always say therapy is a massage for my soul. Because for me, going Mm -hmm. to therapy, I was like, that's, like, so much money and time. And you have nothing to show for it. And it was like, no, this is for my soul. This is to heal me. Um, I, another thing that really supported me was having only male fellows in the program with a lot of time mm-hmm. be friends. So it was reestablishing how to have friendly boundaries with the opposite sex. Which is a whole other ball game when you have no boundaries and the men in your life didn't have any boundaries. So it was it was learning how to have a real friendship with the male sex and seeing that they're a human just like I'm a human. I have feelings, they have feelings. Then it was also my girlfriends, I had to weed out a lot of girlfriends. I realized I surrounded myself with people that weren't great support systems, that didn't bring out the best in me. And it made me really look at every relationship in my life and say, is this healthy? Does this make me feel good? Does this person, is it an equal friendship? Do they give to me like I give to them? You know, going to meetings twice a week, sometimes three times a week. Now I go to more meetings now than I did when I first started because I know if I don't go to meetings, it doesn't ground me in my sobriety. And I love going to meetings. That's my time. It used to, I used to hate it. I used to hate going to meetings and be like, "Ugh, you know, I have to listen to a bunch of sex addicts talk, Ugh, you know. But I love it now. And then it's also having a partner that isn't trying to fix you. That's a partner. It's not someone that's all-encompassing. You know, it's not something, someone that creates drama. So getting rid of all the drama in your life, reestablishing a relationship with my parents, seeing that they did the best they could. My father did the best he could, but we had a year. We stopped talking because he kept crossing my boundaries. And I said, I can't talk to you anymore. If you keep crossing these boundaries. So I didn't talk to my father for a year. Um, those are the things I really did, wrote in my journal, meditated. That's the hardest for me is sitting still and meditating, I'll still say to this day. But those are the tools that really helped. And then once, you know, I did my fourth step, and if you're listening, it's when you look at all your resentments. And for me, my resentment list was 176 people. It was a big resentment list. And it took me two years to do it, but I committed. Like, I only have to go through this list once and feel and see my side of the street, see what character defects I run my life on, and choose the opposite of those character defects. Choose the principles of the program, which are having faith, having trust, you know, being of service, um, those kind of things.
0: Well, you know, it is so interesting that you definitely – When when we talked about bottom lines, you knew what you needed to do to get healthy and stay healthy, and you, you evolved, a transformation occurred from feeling like it was something you had to do to feeling like it was something you needed to sustain your sobriety and yourself. And so I was wondering, it had to be difficult for you to decide to share your story with the world. I mean, oh. I know you're an actress. This is still very, <laughs> very private. So what shifted you and gave you
1: that courage? It was crazy. Listen, if you're listening, I never wanted to come out and say I was a sex and love addict. And I work in Hollywood, and you go on set, and there are sex and love addicts everywhere. And it was never, I was going to take this to my grave. You know, this is my journey. This is my story the people closest to me know about it so I didn't have any shame about it but it really evolved for me because well one thing I saw kept males were coming out as sex addicts and it and, and people were bashing them and as a female sex addict I'm I, it would it would bother me that they would only see this small part of of someone that has this disease but I still was never going to come out so how it went down is this, you know, my husband was saying, you need, you're a writer, please write, write, write something about this. And I'm like, I'm not a writer. I'm dyslexic. I have ADHD. I have no interest in writing, but he kept, you know, he kept saying, just take this program and uh, this writing course. And I was like, fine. And I wrote a book in 45 days and it was my story. It's fiction, but it's based on my story and it just flew out of me, and there was such a beautiful thing to turn my journey of—I just got my ten-year chip. I turned my journey into this work of art, and it just felt so released, like I released something. I allowed myself to be who I am, and in doing that, I—they, my agents—and they were like, "You need to." you know, write an article, and so I wrote this article for HuffPost. It got approved, which I was shocked, and it it came out March 9th of this year, and I have to tell you, Carol, the morning it was coming out, I almost had a panic attack. I was like, what am I doing? Is this going to ruin my career? Are people going to, like, freak out? Am I going to, like, be left on the dirt and, you know, all the things. I'm a female on top of it, and and then nothing happened. Wow. Are you there? Yeah. yeah. Nothing happened, Carol. Nothing happened. The world did not stop. It was, uh-huh. it, it was, it was, like I started cracking up. My husband and I started cracking up and it was like, we think we're so important. And it was like, such a beautiful moment for me because i'm like i'm just a small dot on this planet and i thought this huge thing was going to happen and it didn't the world kept going people kept started reaching out to me saying thank you so much you told my story men and women were reaching out to me and it was like it was such a beautiful way to connect to a wider audience than just you know the people in la or when i speak in different countries on the phone or something. It just it felt like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing.
0: Well, again, very, very brave to take that risk. And I know I say that to myself consistently. I am not that important. This is not that big mm-hmm. of a deal. Everything's going to be fine, <laughs> whether I'm doing something risky or whether I've done something that I regret. I remind myself that you know this is this is all about life and being true, authentic, and and having integrity. So, so everything came out. You said it was March third that the March, article March came out. 9th. March
1: ninth. March ninth of okay, this so year,
0: right before COVID, right.
1: Yeah, three days before COVID, and then the world just shut down. It was so funny. If, if that's not it, let's like, oh, see how small you are?
0: Because COVID is taking over. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. Right. right. So then, obviously, the very first book you wrote was, that was a sex and love addict, here's how I realized I had a problem. Well, that the book I wrote is called
1: Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict, and it's coming out at the end of the year. Um, and then I wrote the article for HuffPost, I'm a Sex and Love Addict, and this is how I
0: knew. Got it. Okay. And yeah. so where can people get your book? Well, they'll be able to
1: get it at the end of the year. You can look on my website, Breanne Davis. It will be on Amazon and every place. So, hopefully, they will can follow me at the Breanne Davis or go to Secret Life Podcast and listen. Um, and I'll have the book information there when it comes out.
0: Okay. Okay, because I want to remind people that I am talking to Breanne Davis and. Her email is secretlifepodcast at iCloud.com, and Mm -hmm. they can find you on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the Brianne Davis, and Mm -hmm. your podcast website is secretlifepodcast.com, and that can be found. um, It's an Apple podcast, right? And you're also on Stitcher, aren't you?
1: Yeah, and pretty much every place you can listen to a podcast, Spotify, Stitcher,
0: Google, Apple, iHeart,
1: all of them.
0: And, you know, nobody listens at the designated time, but when do you put yours out? Is it on a specific day and time? Yeah, it's
1: Tuesday morning. They go out at 3 a.m. Tuesday morning and Friday,
0: 3 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. So. Got it. And so tell us just a little bit about your acting career, too. I, I told my oh. audience that you're absolutely drop dead, unbelievably beautiful. Just beautiful, oh, very stunning. Uh huh. Thank so tell you. What you've been because you have been in lots of different shows.
1: Yeah, I I'm one of those working actors that's been working for 15 years that when people see me at the airport or something they're like, "I know you." Um, but they can never place me, which is awesome at sometimes and not. But, you know, the main thing I just got done with it was on uh the show 6 on History Channel and A&E for 2 years. Uh it's about, you know, um uh, the 6 Seal Team 6 is was the first Seal show. And then I've been on Casual, on Hulu. I'm on that show. I reoccur on that show. Okay. True Blood I reoccurred on. Um, all the CSIs, pretty much every show I've been on. And then, you know, the big movies I've been on is Jarhead, Prom Night for Sony, and um, Synchronicity that just came out. And then I have a new movie coming out September 19th on Lifetime. And it's called the surrogate, so that is coming out. But honestly, I've been around so many years that you, there's you'll be like, oh, that's who I knew her knew her from. I was in um an airplane before COVID, and somebody was like, you're the Dasani sparkling girl, because I did the Dasani girl bubbles. She was obnoxious, the character, but it was so funny. I was like, that's what you know me from selling bubble water. <laughs> Too so thank
0: much you, that's fun. It. <laughs> Okay. We, we want to remind our listening audience that uh, Breanne it has has Secret Life Podcast. It, it actually launched on August 3rd, 2020. Mm-hmm. And it's a show that features eclectic groups of friends and strangers who share their deepest, darkest secrets. And sometimes it, it ends up being just a hilarious uh, group of people that feel that relief of letting it all hang out, so to speak, and and I want to thank you so much for uh, coming on. I know that I think I'm going to be on your podcast soon, so yeah. I look, I look forward to uh, hearing more about you. Keep me posted. Let me know what you're doing, and I'll let our listening audience know. Um, as we end for tonight, is there anything you want to share with anybody who believes? They may have a sex or love addiction?
1: First of all, I have to say, and this is very important, that you are not alone. The meetings now that I see in LA and other cities are huge. It's 80 to 100 people of every different type of person. So you are not alone. Nothing is wrong with you. You are not broken. There is a place. For you to get help there is a place to get out of your disease to get out of your pain to get out of that need for other people to fix you to make you feel like you're worthy because you're worthy just as you are and then if you are with a sex and love addict or a sex addict you have to know that it has nothing to do with you there's nothing wrong with you this person has a disease you could be the most perfect individual and it wouldn't matter So you cannot fix them. So you have to find the love for yourself and realize, do I want to go on this journey with this person and help them heal? Or is this too much and I need to get out of the relationship? Either one is your choice. So I just have to say that because for me it's very important. I used to say it didn't matter who the man was. You could put a bag over their head. It's just what I wanted them to mirror for me. So I hope that helps somebody. If you're struggling, there is a place where you can get help and just reach out.
0: Well, and the one thing about COVID that has just made this so amazing is that almost all the meetings are telehealth. They're on Zoom. And you can yeah. find a meeting 24 hours a day because the U.K. may be having something at 3 in the morning when you need it most. So, Brian Davis, exactly. thank you so much. I wish you the best of luck.
1: Thank you so much for having me, and have a lovely evening.
0: You too. So, again, Sex and Love Addict in recovery, Breon Davis, and uh, you, can, you can email her if you have questions by going to Secret Podcast at icloud.com. So... I will see you next week for more sex help with Carol the Coach. And um, thanks for listening. Uh, as always, it wouldn't be a show if it weren't for you. If you've got some great ideas for who I should interview and what we should talk about, get a hold of me at carol at com. And as I say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times. Carelessly, have the courage to be yourself. Make it a good week.